0: Episode 173, The Prophet Jonah, Part 1. Matthew twelve thirty eight. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The account of Jonah is one of those stories that fits into all the children's Bible stories. But at the heart of it, it's the account of the greatest biblical history city revival. And it's a sign of the resurrection of Jesus. By combining the history and the biblical accounts and the hidden pictures and the signs of Jesus... Is a wonderfully rich account far beyond the cute kid story. The small four chapter book of Jonah is rich and full of meanings. We start off today with part one from the new call Jonah receives until we drop him off on a beach on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. We discuss the sign of Jesus and his symbolism all along the way. To start this episode, we've got to set the historical situation at this time. Sorry to the listeners out there who we've probably already heard part of this. Um, I don't prefer to do repeats, but many listeners listen selectively to their favorite accounts, or they just selectively study certain characters for a Bible study or teaching or such. So um, here's the biblical uh, current historical situation. Northern Israel has experienced an incredible boom and expansion in territory at the cost of all of its neighbors except Judah, which has expanded as well. Northern Israel, blessed with the word of God from the prophet Jonah previously, aggressively took this word that it would increase in territory to expand up to the previous northern Israel Solomon territorial extent. This actually happened. Under King Jeroboam II, northern Israel took much territory as far north as, as Damascus, as prophesied by the prophet Jonah. At this time, the world's superpower, Assyria, had a death of a great leader, Adad-Narari III, which caused the provinces to instantly revolt. The Assyrian Empire basically ceased to exist. The empire crumbled, great cities broke away, leaving Nineveh and its surrounding territory isolated and even vulnerable. This breaking away of Assyria, of the larger cities, including Damascus, leaves a huge power vacuum that Israel filled. Now, as the story finds us setting outside of Israel, and the focus becomes a city of Nineveh, the horrible capital of the atrocity-loving Assyrians, we've got to focus on what's going on in Nineveh the past five or so years. At this point, the Assyrians are humbled geopolitically. Now let's cover the other historical events that occurred in and around this mighty city. The Assyrian capital, Nineveh, a city of 120,000 people, next got decimated by a plague in 765 B.C. The capital was in turmoil and disease was rampant in the city. The people were crying to their gods and they were not getting an answer. Next, historical records reveal a solar eclipse occurred in 763 B.C., which is freaky considering some people still worship the sun in this age. Then there was a word from one of their priests which seemed to float around like an alarm on the snooze button. The king of Assyria would be overthrown. The king of Assyria would be overthrown. The current king was Aser Dan III, the son of Adan-Narari III, and he ruled from 773 to 755 BC. The word was he was going to go as king, and he would be overthrown. Next, if the leadership wasn't rocked enough, In 760 BC, a massive earthquake, 7.8 to 8.2 on the Richter scale, rocked the entire Middle East, tearing down huge buildings that took years to build, and not to mention killing many people. This is the earthquake referenced at the beginning of the Book of Amos, and Josephus attributes it to the blasphemy of King Uzzah. The earthquake rocked the area, tearing down great buildings. Nineveh was shaken literally to the core, and the people were searching for answers." So that's a lot for one city, but it doesn't end here. In 670 BC, another plague hits Nineveh, decimating the city. Nineveh is being rocked again. Twenty percent of its citizens are dead from plagues, we can guess. Its large buildings were destroyed, its citizens were calling for a new king. Mass groups of people were leaving the city, leaving it gutted. There is no doubt the citizens of the city were praying to their gods and any god who would listen, and their king was powerless against the revolts, the plagues, and the unnatural events around him. Even the king must have been crying out as well. Their answers would come, but not in the way they expected. In the year 759 B.C., a year after the earthquake and the last plague, the prophet Jonah was asked by God to do something completely new. All right, now you've got the picture inside Nineveh. Now we shift our focus to the prophet Jonah. At the moment, Jonah was probably a very rich, spoiled prophet in the king's service, probably the most celebrated of the prophets of his day. He enjoyed being virtual royalty in northern Israel, Imagine the shock when Jonah receives another word from God, and it is to go out of the country and to prophesy to Israel's enemies their destruction. Ever heard of the fight or flight instinct? Jonah's was flight. He ran from God. Here's the account. Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah refused God by running from him. We learn later in Jonah 4 why he ran. He hated the Assyrians, and he wanted them destroyed. His hate was so great for them, many assume he must have had a personal reason as well like a relative being killed by the Assyrians. There's another aspect. We learn that he knows of God's mercy, and if he preaches or declares judgment to the people of Nineveh, he's actually inviting them to repent, and he didn't want this. See, Jonah's smart, and he sees steps down the road, but he has hate in his heart, and he's stubborn. He didn't want to do the hard thing. The easy thing, yes. The hard thing, no. He ran as far as he could and he boarded the ship. I mean, he had some serious issues. He literally went in the opposite direction. Interesting how he went to Joppa, a port city, and bought a fare to go to Tarshish. First, Joppa is where Jonah went to run away from God when he was supposed to prophesy to a Gentile nation. Joppa is where Peter has a trance where he is called to preach to the Gentiles, starting with Cornelius in Caesarea, and brings him and his family to Jesus. Joppa, where Jonah ran away from preaching to a Gentile nation, is where Peter received a trance or a vision of a Gentile soldier and that he would soon preach to. He received the revelation that he would be preaching to the Gentiles. See, God redeems all things. Joppa in the Old Testament represents running from the Gentiles, while Joppa in the New Testament represents welcoming the Gentiles. So where is Tarshish? There's a few theories out there. Tarshish is probably the edge of the Mediterranean southern Spain, or as far away as England where the ten trade ships would have traveled to. So Jonah is on his way out to sea in the Mediterranean, preferring to run away from God than to do his will. See, Jonah is stubborn, and he's unwilling to do the hard thing. He's a prophet, and he's gifted, and he appears to have some good wisdom. But he's not submitted to God. Sound familiar to anyone out there? Are you gifted, but not submitted? Jonah has not been broken And it will take a giant fish or something like that to do it. Don't wait to be submitted. The longer you wait, the harder the breaking. Take a horse. The longer you wait to train it, the harder it is to break later. Don't be like Jonah. So Jonah is miserable, running away from the Holy Spirit and God's assignment over him. It's the most dangerous place to be in the world. Out of God's will. Here's Jonah on a ship headed away from Israel and away from God's purposes for him. What happens is he's exposed and out of God's will, and this is when the devil has access to attack people. But the Lord has a safety net traveling under the sea to save Jonah. Now the Bible said the Lord sent a great wind and violent sea, and we have to remember that this doesn't in the Old Testament necessarily mean that this was God, but even the devil? Quoting an Old Testament uh, quote, even from the Life Application Study Bible reference, the Old Testament writers, and this is what it says, the Old Testament writers do not distinguish between primary and secondary characters at times. The implication is that the Lord allowed the devil The sin the storm or the sin of Jonah opened the door or the spiritual door for the enemy to send a violent storm to destroy him. What we have to understand is that this fish or whale or whatever it is, is the Lord's deliverance for Jonah. All right, here we go. Jonah 1, 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm across that the ship threatened to break up. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up, throw me in the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and made vows to him. All right, so um, I'm going to kind of go off what I've been preparing for this, because I have read this account so many times and seen the story, and I never caught this before. Um, But if you recognize what the guys said, these are the sailors. Um, They said, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. And as Jesus said that Jonah was a sign For the Pharisees, <laughs> here is Jonah, an innocent man, to these sailors, and they actually kill him in their eyes by throwing him overboard. Jesus, the innocent lamb, died for our sins. All right, so I'll get back to what I prepared. And first of all, so there's a, there's a spiritual cause and effect. The storm was there to take out Jonah. Jonah was thrown into the sea, and the sea calmed. The devil didn't want to take out his idol-worshiping sea captains. The sea calmed, but it was obvious to the sea captains now whose God was in charge. And when peace comes and the waters are stilled, people are saved. Jonah, even in his running, showed God's power, and many came to know him. A naval revival in the Bible. But Jonah's dead now, at least they thought, thrown into the raging, now calm sea, and left as the ship sailed on. Jonah probably couldn't swim back then, and he struggled and struggled and eventually just gave up and sank under the water to his death. The next scene is why this part of the Bible gets such kids coverage. But this really isn't a kid story. Sorry, kids out there. Jonah 1, 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, so that's just unbelievable. Like a huge fish swallowed Jonah. So what's going on here? It's Seriously, is this a whale or some creature from the dinosaur age? And... Honestly, no one seems to have the true answer to this question. Whales probably easiest for us to understand, since there is such—they are so huge and they have enormous cavities in their stomach. But the Bible leaves it ambiguous. Uh, Jesus even uses the word fish. Jonah should be dead, but he's not. He's alive in the belly of a fish. Doesn't this story just scream of absurdity? But it's in the Bible. It's a wonder, and to consider the links God went to get Jonah back on track. He sent a giant fish to swallow him when he was thrown in the sea. What a wild story. Next, we actually have Jonah's prayer, word for word, from inside of the fish. It's so remarkable. We actually have Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish. Jonah 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. And when my life was ebbing away, I remember you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Many scholars point to Jonah actually dying, and then he's in the belly of the fish. He said, from the realm of the dead, I called out for help. I'm not going to try to go there and how it was possible for him to call from the dead, because I have no idea... And did he actually die, or was he in the fish, or was it figurative language? But the symbolism in this account is staggering. And Jesus' reference to Jonah can be breathtaking to consider. So this is where we leave Jonah on the shores of the Mediterranean. He's vomited up by the whale. And I leave you trying to picture what he looked like. He hasn't seen the light of day in three days, and his oxygen exposure inside the fish was probably very limited. Imagine that look if you go swimming for an hour or you take that crazy long shower. Your finger and toes have a a bumped, dried-out, pale look. Imagine this all over your body. Jonah must have had an oxygen-deprived, pale, and sickly appearance. In fact, he must have been beyond pale, with a white tone to his skin color and extreme sensitivity to the Mediterranean sun. So we leave Jonah catching his breath on a beach on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. The waves crashing over him, his oxygen-deprived skin soaking up the Mediterranean sun. Troubled, humbled, and terrified, Jonah processes what just happened and how he plans to get to and speak to the people of Nineveh. Jesus told the Pharisees, the only sign I give you is the sign of Jonah. What does this mean? It means for three days, Jonah was below sea level, not to see the light of day for three whole days. Jesus will be falsely accused, tried as an innocent man, (laughs) kind of like how Jonah was killed as an innocent man in their eyes. And Jesus further was beaten and crucified and buried in a tomb. His body was in a tomb for three days when he, like Jonah, saw the light of day again and walked on the earth. Isn't God just phenomenal, considering how things occur in the Old Testament and they're just signs of the future? To think that all of this was to create and to prove a sign is phenomenal. Jonah was a sign of Jesus, God's resurrection of Jesus, According to the language, God rescued and even potentially raised Jonah from the dead. It's a sign and wonder that telegraphs his plays ahead of time. But no one realizes the replays in full effect until afterward. See, the God above time and space wrote the script of the earth many, many eons ago, and he knows the past, present, and future, and when it comes to the power of God on display in Jesus. God telegraphed the resurrection of Jesus in this scene with Jonah. He even told the Pharisees who would conspire to kill him. How many other pictures are out there that have already been painted for us? God, open our eyes. We study to find the hidden pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. But what about the upcoming end of the age and all the words about the end of the world? God may have, may have already given us a picture of all that will occur and all that has already occurred. God's power and presence and wonder-working ability is overwhelming. Take the fish eating Jonah alone, and we have a tremendous story. But realizing it was allowed to happen, to paint a picture for us to have a sign of the future resurrection, amazing. The wonder of the story of Jonah only points to the greater one, Jesus, and his death and resurrection. So the symbolism doesn't just end here. Since we're talking about the three days between the death of Jesus and the resurrection, we have to talk about the event called the harrowing of hell. Jonah, who was potentially raised from the dead, symbolizing the resurrection of Jesus. But when Jesus died, something occurred in the spirit. So let's just use three scriptures specifically um, to kind of talk about this three-day time period. So here are the three. 1 Peter 3.19 Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. 1 Peter four six. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God and the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 7 But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ Jesus apportioned it. That is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does ascend mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who had descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Also, the Apostles' Creed, just the Apostles' Creed itself, it talks about that three-day time period, Um, and it's pretty clear there as well. According to the Scriptures, when Jesus died, he went and preached, or retrieved or pulled up those who were dead, or the righteous ones who had previously died at a certain point, and brought them up to heaven. I have no idea how he did this, and how it occurred all in the spirit, but it's what it says. So Jesus saved those who were dead, and hadn't gone to heaven previously, and pulled them up to heaven, like a pre-rapture of sorts, but only people who had died. Now, where these souls were is a bit of a mystery, and some call this place Abraham's bosom from Luke 16, So hell is a place of torment designed for the devil. But when the ancients studied and spoke of this three-day time period for Jesus, um, they just said that, for simplicity, they said that Jesus went down to hell to retrieve the imprisoned spirits. According to the ancients, Jesus plundered hell at this point. The ancients had a term for this scene, and it led to lots of fascination into what it looked like. It must have been something out of some fantasy novel. I mean, where did the souls go, and where were they exactly? Well, the ancients called the scene the harrowing of hell. So let's take now the context of Jesus speaking to those Pharisees and the fact that he chose this as a sign. Here's what he said, out of context, of course. The only sign I give you is a sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish for three days. I will be in the heart of the earth for three days. Now let's add more. While Jonah was in the belly of a fish, I will be in the belly of the earth, laying claim to my righteous ones, redeeming the world and the souls of those who followed me and those who hadn't heard my name yet. Now substituting what we learn later into Jesus' answer to the Pharisees, who he truly despised for their wickedness and perversion of God's law. This is what he said to them. The only sign I give to you Pharisees will be the sign of Jonah and the harrowing of hell. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, message to share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at message to kings at gmail.com.